Father, we're grateful that you brought us together again, and we ask that in your mercy and your kindness that you would give us wisdom and grace as we move through um, the text this morning in Hebrews chapter 6. I pray that you'll give us humility before a text that's challenging on multiple levels, but I also pray that you'll give us a spirit of submission, Lord, that we would hear what you by your Spirit have to say to us, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, feel free, grab coffee, come on in. If you remember, last week we were in chapter 5, and we saw that the author to the Hebrews has, has gone into a moment of exhortation again. And that's the move that he makes back and forth in this book as he goes from talking about some sort of comparison, a lesser to greater. You've heard about angels, but Jesus is better. You've heard about Moses, but Jesus is better. And he goes back and forth like that. And in the middle of this movement back and forth that the author makes, he then will step in and move into a moment of exhortation. Um, the Word of God is quick and it's powerful. It cuts us right down to the heart of our, of our very being. And in this uh, section that we're in right now, he has turned away from a discussion about Jesus as high priest out of the order of Melchizedek. And he's turned to the people again in a pastoral sense. And he said to them, um, I really wish that you were mature. Right? And th- this speaks something to the generation of believers that the author is writing to. It's, it's, it's a generation of believers that has heard the gospel, that's been fed on the gospel, and Their senses, their hearing in um, the language of the author of the Hebrews in chapter 5 has become dull. You've become dull of hearing. By this time you ought to be teachers, but you still need someone to be teaching you. You need milk and not solid food. And what we were talking about in this last week, if you remember, was we try to be careful to say that the claim about milk was not and meat was not necessarily a claim that you've had milk and now we need to move on to deeper and better things. It's not necessarily that. It's a recognition that milk is necessary. The elementary teachings are necessary. We're going to see this in chapter 6. But the author of the Hebrews is saying, I want to build on that now. We need to build into this, into the implications of what your faith in the gospel actually means in the reality of the world in which you live. Why? Well, in the first century world where this is being written, if, if it is the first century, I think it is, this is a world that's still rather hostile to Christianity. This is a world where martyrs are being made. Um, in, in the famous words of Athanasius from the fourth century, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And apathetic, dull of hearing kinds of Christians don't, don't really make martyrs. And that's, that's, and this is, that's why this is meat here, right? Let's pull out, Pull out your steak knives a moment. So he's warning them that they've become dull of hearing. He's he's, he's encouraging them to remember what happened back in the wilderness in the Old Testament. There even the people of God who saw the miracles of God before them day in and day out. That's actually quite astounding. I mean, think about this. If you're in the wilderness and you're being led by God, you're seeing a miraculous provision in the morning and the evening of food. You're seeing a miraculous provision of God that there's a cloud in the day that's leading you and a big pillar of fire of night. The very Shekinah glory of God is in your midst leading you. And despite that, there's grumbling and there's a dullness of hearing and there's a tendency to turn inward and to go back toward immaturity in the faith. That's a challenge. 
Now, I say this as an aside and I'm completely off script here, but I do think that that's a good reminder for all of us as Christians who are looking for um, special nuggets, right? I think we have to be very careful here, right? But in other words, I, I, I would love it if I had some sort of special revelation, just me and God that I could hold on to. Or wouldn't it have been great if we could be with Jesus in the first century world? I mean, if I could have been close to the real Jesus and actually seeing Jesus do the things that He did, whether by His teaching, whether by His power to forgive, whether by His ability to raise people from the dead. I mean, if I could just see that, then for sure my faith would be uh, without wavering, right? I mean, one thing that I think we learn from the Bible, especially the Gospels and the Old Testament wilderness stories, is proximity or nearness to the miraculous activity of God is no guarantee of faith. It's not. Proximity to these historical realities is no guarantee of faith. Matter of fact, the way in which John's Gospel frames the matter, the closer people got to Jesus in the first century world, the harder it was for them to believe. Right? Really? You? Even John the Baptist, the night before he dies, sends a message to Jesus and he says, and by the way, really you? Are you the one? Um, so proximity to these miraculous activities is not necessarily not necessarily a guarantee of faith, but these Christians had experienced something. These Hebrew Christians here had experienced something, and he's warning them not to go back into immaturity. So he's he's pushing them to maturity. And what is maturity here? As we move into chapter six, it's a following through on the implications of faith. The following through on the implications of faith. Let me read chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, he says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, to fullness, to completeness, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, with instructions about, and here's a big RSV word, ablutions, washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. All right. So what's he saying here? He's saying, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ. Now, one has to be careful here with the way in which this issue is framed. Again, the leaving that the author is talking about is not a leaving, setting it aside, a supersession, putting it behind so that now we can go on to some deeper mystical truth. The claim that's being made here is a claim that the elementary teachings that have been brought to you the elementary teachings of the faith, and he gives us a list of them here, right? Of repentance from dead works, faith in God, instructions about ablutions. Now, frankly, we're not real sure what he's talking about here. Now, you'll read all the commentaries. I'll just tell you, we're not completely sure. Now, for a long time, this has been interpreted simply as baptism. That's a deal. It's a matter of ritual washing and purification, maybe. Um, there's also a sense in which maybe in this first century world of Jewish, Hellenized, Greek Christians that they were still participating in some kind of ritualistic Jewish uh, washing rites. 
that's possible too. Um, it's not something that, for example, if you're going to go into the newcomer's class, if you read that in the purple sheet, right? Today we're going to talk about the gospel. Next week we're going to give you a tour of the nave and let you see all the beautiful stained glass. Third week's how to do ritual washings. Um, I mean, that, it's just not part of um, the instruction of faith as we know it now. But it was ingredient there in their particular uh, moment in time. So he's saying here that he's wanting to push beyond milk to maturity. Confident that these believers will go with him to that place. So two things I want to emphasize, and I've said it before, but I'll say it one more time. Number one, this is not a Gnostic claim. Now, what, what, what do we know about Gnosticism? It was a prevalent view really in the second century and then into the third century as well. But we might have what was referred to as proto-Gnosticism already at play in the first century world. I'm explaining what this term means. For example, in the book of Colossians, it's possible that Paul is encountering and engaging um, the heresy of a sort of proto-Gnostic view. And what is Gnosticism at its core? A couple of things. Number one, Gnosticism affirmed that the material world itself, the world of matter that we live in, is bad, but the spiritual world, the world of the noumen, the world of the mind, the world of ideas, the spirit world, that's where purity resides. This particular philosophical outlook caused an enormous amount of problems in the early church. You, you know about Marcion, or at least you've heard his name if you've had any classes with me before. He's bad guy number one in the history of the church. Now, Marcion was a second century heretic, and in his heretical outlook, he's mostly remembered for the fact that he denies the continuing validity of the Old Testament. I, I especially don't like that. I mean, anytime I sniff Marcionism in any sort of insipid form, my hackles immediately begin to raise, right? He did, he, so he excised uh, the, the Old Testament from the Bible. He, he took a rather Jeffersonian approach to the Bible. The parts that I don't like, well, we'll just white them out. I mean, why, why deal with them, right? So that was what he was doing. But we remember him for that. I think what we often forget about Marcion is that the reason why Marcion made the conclusion that he did about the Old Testament being irrelevant or passé for Christian faith is because of this presupposed philosophical outlook about God and God's relationship to the material world. If you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament is blood and guts and sex. I mean, it's rated R from beginning to end. It's messy. It's material. It's physical. It's bound up with all the problems of being in this world of time and space. Marcion was right in that regard. But his presupposition regarding God's identity meant for him that God, as God is in his purity, could never be the God who's all messed up in that kind of stuff that you see in the history of Israel. Rather, what you find with Jesus is a rather docetic view of someone who's hovering off the ground and is not really all that bound by the material world in which Jesus um, lives. Frankly, it's hard to know how anyone can read the Bible from beginning to end and come to that conclusion. But also, I don't think we recognize how strong our presuppositions about who God must be actually influence the way in which we go about reading the Bible. That's actually for me and for you as well, right? We have a preconceived notion. This is a God of our making. We take that God of our making to the Bible, and we need to make the Bible fit. 
Rather than the other way around, I was thinking about C.S. Lewis recently, where Lewis said, God certainly is good, but God is not safe, right? And you get into the, into the Old Testament, the New Testament, God is good, but God's not safe. You're entering into the world of time and space and physicality. And God, by an act of grace and self-determination, is in the middle of all of that. Thus, the incarnation. Jesus taking on flesh is exhibit A, that God cares and loves His material world. You know the hymn that, I don't know if we sing this around here, I don't remember singing it at Advent, but this is my Father's world. Do we ever sing that around here? This is my Father's world. I mean, that's a claim that the material world and the created order is good. It's God's. It's a good gift. And that's really great for those of you who like a good bottle of wine because you have theological validity for why you like it. Number two with Gnosticism, right? Number two. The other issue with Gnosticism is there was a claim, again, and it's all bound up in this resistance to the material world, but there's a claim that the higher one grows in gnosis, that's Gnosticism, in knowledge, the less one's tied to the material world, and the more one becomes detached from this world with special insight, special knowledge, special revelation, right? So you're looking for some sort of Gnostic clue that releases you from the warp and woof of normal human experiences to have a different kind of encounter that removes you from the material world. Right? The Bible, I I just believe from beginning to end, is resistant to that kind of instinct to want to find something better. Right? I've got the gospel. I've heard the good news about God's love to us in Jesus by the Holy Spirit, that the Father's come into the world to redeem us. I've heard my confession about the created world and the, and the hope of the future, which is the new creation, all things being made right again. I got that, got that. Now I want the special stuff, right? Where, where's the really fine material that I can, that I can move on? And everyone has that gospel stuff. That's sort of common matter. I want to go somewhere special beyond that. That's not what the author to the Hebrews here is saying. He's not saying, you've had all that basic stuff, the ABCs. Now let me take you on to this ethereal, mystical world. I don't believe that's what he's claiming. I believe what he's claiming is, you have the foundations of the faith. You have the gospel that's been given to you, and it's been taught to you, in the generation before you, and in your generation as well. And the question is, are you going to build on that foundation that's been given to you so that the reality of the gospel makes its presence known in your community, in your faith? Why? Now, this is the big picture of Hebrews. Why? So that you can persevere to the end. So that now, in this moment, you can believe that the gospel is true and that it's true for you. And when Diocletian unleashes that new principle where if you don't bow to Caesar, you're going to go to the arena, that's a moment right there where you need to make a claim. This gospel is true, and it's true for it's true for me. So I think this is what the author to the Hebrews is getting at here. He's wanting to build on the teachings. He's wanting to, to develop it. Faith and repentance. Okay. Well, now we go to the next verses. Jesus, have you returned yet? Okay, no, then I have to deal with them. Okay. Uh, that was a little bad joke. Um, these are hard verses. I'll read them to you and I'll just go ahead and say we'll you know, go humbly into this. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have become 
partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then commit apostasy, if they fall away, since they crucify the Son of God on their own account and hold Him up to contempt. Without doubt, some of the hardest verses in the New Testament, if not in the whole of the Bible. Now let's talk about this for a little bit. What's the warning? Well, I don't think we in any way want to attenuate or make thin the claim that's being made here. It is impossible. Now we're going to come back to why this is impossible. And then if you want to wrestle with this in some Q&A, we'll do it. But the impossibility is stated. What's the impossibility? To restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened. So that's the key term throughout this. Who have once been enlightened. Who have once tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Once, once, once. Right. So here's the... Here's the tension that one feels right in this particular section on apostasy. What does it mean here to apostatize? Well, I think there's a parallel here. Right? There's a parallel to verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ or the foundation of Christ and go on to maturity. And the parallel here is, again, to the foundation that is Jesus and the gospel entering into that life, and then the danger that comes from leaving that in an act of apostasy. So the question is raised, what is apostasy? And what does it mean for people to be in the community of faith and to be enlightened? You hear the terms here? Once you were enlightened, once you tasted, once you enjoyed the heavenly gift, right? Um, I think if we want an analogy from Jesus, and don't think that Jesus is going to let us off the hook on this either. He's complicated too. I'd take Paul any day of the week over Jesus. Jesus says some very hard things. How about this one? The parable of the soils, or the parable of the sower and the seed. And some falls among the thorny ground, or the rocky ground, and it takes root, and it grows a little bit, and then it dies and falls away. Right? If what I think you see here is a similar claim that's being made in Hebrews, it's a warning about those who have tasted and enjoyed the reality of the gospel and then they fall away from it by repudiating, and this is crucial, by repudiating the very foundation of, the, of their faith, the very foundation of the gospel itself. Can I read this to you? This is a quote from a commentator named Lane. The apostate repudiates the only basis upon which repentance can be extended. So when it says that it's impossible to restore them to repentance, the question that's raised is why is it impossible? Because they've repudiated the only basis there is for repentance itself. And that is Christ Himself. They've repudiated Christ and they've embraced what is the impossible. Now, I wanted to read this to you because I found it very helpful. Very helpful because it's going to help clarify, at least for me. The apostle here, to his writing to the Hebrews, is talking about something very specific. Right? I mean, have you ever heard people ask you the question, what is the sin against the Holy Spirit? Right? What is that? That's the kind of thing that makes us very afraid, uh, and rightly so. In other words, I think the warning that the author to the Hebrews is bringing here today is a legitimate warning. 
He's doing this out of pastoral care. Now we're going to see in a second, I don't, I'm, I don't want to bury my lead. We're going to see in the next verses that the author to the Hebrews believes that what he just said is the impossible possibility for his hearers. So he's going to, he's going to help them see that really this is no threat to you. At least I don't believe it is. It's going to be pastoral. But he's putting out there the reality that apostasy is real. The warning is real. The challenge is real. And one should take stock of that. So what is this sin against the Holy Spirit? At least in the Protestant tradition, this sin against the Holy Spirit is not a breach of the law. It's not that. The sin against the Holy Spirit is a rejection of the gospel of grace offered to us in Jesus. That's the sin against the Holy Spirit. That's to apostatize, to reject the teachings of Christ and to turn away from the gospel to something other. And that's a repudiation of the very basis and hope of repentance itself. So hear Calvin on this, if you don't mind. And Calvin, I was a little nervous. I thought Calvin was going to be a little hard here. You know, the guy had hemorrhoids. He struggled. Um, but he's actually quite good. Listen, and I don't like being read to, but can you hang with me on this one? Uh, the apostle speaks not here of theft or perjury, or murder, or drunkenness, or adultery. But he refers to a total defection or falling away from the gospel when a sinner offends not God in some one thing, but entirely renounces his grace. And that this may be better understood, let us suppose a contrast between the gifts of God which he has mentioned and this falling away. So let me read that one part one more time. The apostle speaks here not of theft or perjury or murder or drunkenness or adultery, but he refers to a total defection or falling away from the gospel when a sinner offends not God in some one thing, not in a particular in our sinning, but when the when this offender renounces entirely um, his grace. And you've met people like that, right? I, I have, right? I have. Um, and it's horrifying. I think this is the challenge here. A recognition that one can turn away from the good news of the gospel and reject it and move away. It's a challenge. It's, it's, it's a warning. Um, but listen to how pastoral the author to the Hebrews is as he moves on. He gives an illustration in verses 7 to 8 about the land. and I'll, I'm going to hop over that. But listen to what he says in verse 9. Verse 9. Though we speak thus, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. Right? This is a great word. For God is not so unjust as to overlook the work of love which you've shown for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of faith and hope until the end, so that you might not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. This is the big B-U-T here. The author believes that apostasy is a real danger and needs to be warned against. But when he moves on pastorally and speaks to them, he speaks in very direct ways. But this is not the case with you. Better things belong to you. 
This is the impossible possibility for the author to the Hebrews. He's pastoral with them to the end. In other words, and I'll put this to you in all areas when it comes to people's salvation, it's really never in our position to judge anyone's location vis-a-vis the mercy of God. We're just never in a position to do that. We're never in a position to identify someone, well, that's an apostate. Won't you be very careful about being in a position like that unless it's so overt in public that the renunciation of the gospel has become something of, of public record or, or something of that nature. And there's a few people I wouldn't mind calling that, but I'll, I'll read it. Right? Um, this is a big deal here. This is, this is Paul in Galatians 1 saying, if anyone teaches you a different gospel, this is Paul now, let them be anathema. Let them be accursed. If anyone teaches you a different gospel, why? Because the sole basis of repentance and faith is built on the gospel itself. And to deny that is to deny the gospel and is to deny, to deny the hope of repentance. But here he says, but that's not you. Why? I see the work of God's Spirit in your midst. I see what's going on within, in your midst. And now he's challenging them. And this is what maturity looks like. Okay, This is the pastoral response. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope until the end. Why? So that you not be sluggish. It's a great word here. Do you you hear? He's being a little pointed. All the way back in chapter 5, he's called them dole of hearing. Now he's saying you're getting a little sluggish. You're getting a little lazy. And I'm encouraging you not to be lazy, but to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And if you know anything about the book of Hebrews, that's where the author's going to chapter 11, right? To give us all these models of people who inherited the promises on the basis of faith. That's the big picture here in the book of Hebrews. It's a challenge to faithful hope, to steadfast hope, to persevering hope, to hope that sustains you to the end. Now, I mentioned this to you before, um, but it's Similar to that scene of John Calvin. It's a famous painting on his deathbed surrounded by people. And when Calvin's on his deathbed surrounded by people, and there's, there's no caption on this, but if you've, I've read enough on Calvin to know what those people were saying around his deathbed at the final moment. And what they were saying to him is, the gospel is true. The word of the gospel is true. Why? Because even a great teacher like Calvin recognize the dynamic character of faith, the dynamic life of repentance that we leave before God that's an again and again and again reality. And even at that final moment, wherever you are in your spiritual maturity, we need to be told again and be reminded at this most crucial moment that the Gospel is true. And that's what the author is saying here to these people. I've seen God's work in your midst. I've seen the fact that you you have perseverance and hope and faith. I've seen it there. It's kind of the thing that I think we say to our children sometimes, right? I was thinking about this maybe as a possible illustration. Um, You know, you have your three-year-old or your four-year-old or your five-year-old son or daughter, and and they're really sweet. You know, I, I can think of one of my children in particular that went through a time that just absolute syrup i mean sweet all the time just oh what a delight your smile and then all of a sudden six seven eight you know a little attitude little lip um and you're like where's the sweet boy i once knew right i know he's in there somewhere can can he please come back to play right 
I think that's in, in, in a sense what's being said here by the author of the Hebrews. I know what God has done in your midst. I know what He's done in your own heart by planting in your heart the reality of faith and repentance and the hope of the Gospel. And I'm calling you back to that to build onto it in maturity. And what does maturity look like? Again, it's not a Gnostic key. It's not an airship flight to some higher land. It's none of that. The hope of maturity is that you will be steadfast in your patience and in your faith and in your perseverance to the end. It's a very simple and straightforward claim about the perseverance of the saints. And even in our 39 articles, we have affirmations that we believe that Christians persevere in their faith to the end. Does that mean that they're sort of morally triumphant people? No, not necessarily. But it does mean that up until the end, Christians are those who believe in the hope of the gospel and recognize that their sole hope for security in the future and the words of Hebrews is that we have a high priest who's in heaven presenting his own blood before the Father and that is my sole hope of security in this life. Um, I've said this illustration in other lessons, so forgive me for repeating. I just don't have that many good ones. Um, but we had some people in our house at one point that did evangelism explosion on us. Um, and and you've maybe that's really the term, actually. Um, I took a seminary course on evangelism explosion, believe it or not. And um, and they and they ask you a very straightforward question. And it's not a bad question. The question is, if you are to die today and you were to stand before God's heavenly tribunal and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? It's not a bad question because, you know, in the South, everyone says they're a Christian, right? But when you want to get down to it, well, how, how are you getting in, right? And so they asked me this question, and, uh, and my response, I mean, I just told them, you know, I said, I, I, I teach Bible for a living, and, um, you know, I, I'm at Beeson Divinity School. Maybe that didn't help at all. I don't know. And, and it just didn't matter. I mean, they were going to go through the spiel, and they were going to bring me to a point of decision. I mean, it's like, you got to make a decision. I'm like, holy, I'm exhausted. And I wasn't very hospitable at that moment. I, my wife was giving me the eye from the couch. and um, So they brought me to the point where I had to, had to answer. And I, and I was a little bit exasperated. So they said, when, when, they, when God asks you that question, what are you going to say? And I said, I said, Jesus. That's what I'll say. I'll just say Jesus. All right. Which wasn't said in the best of spirits or motivations, but 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 the material content wasn't that bad, was it? Right? Um, I mean, what do you say in that moment when you're standing before a heavenly tribunal? What's the hope for you? What's the and, and the words of the Heidelberg Catechism? What's the only comfort that we have in this life and in our death? The only comfort that we have in life and in death is the hope of the gospel that one has redeemed us that one has shed His blood for us, and that when I stand before God someday in that moment of judgment, the only thing I can say is Jesus. That's it. Right. So that's the move that's being made here. Um, and then he goes on to give the illustration of illustrations for these Christians. right? Especially these Jewish Christians. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since He had... No one greater by whom to swear. He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and I will multiply you. Chapter 6, verses 13 through 20 gives us the basis of our hope. What's the basis of this steadfast confidence that we can have to the end? Not the measure of my faith, not the quality of my faith, 
Not the profundity of my faith. Not the size of my faith. Not the quality of my repentance. What is the sure and steadfast hope, the basis that we build our hope on? The answer in chapter 6, verse 13 to 20 is, your hope is built on the fact that you have a high priest, again, who's interceding for you. That's the basis of your hope. It's never... I hope you hear this. If you hear anything in the book of Hebrews, hear this. The call in the book of Hebrews is never a call to turn inward toward internal self-betterment. It's never a call to that. The call in the book of Hebrews to maturity is a looking outward to the reality of the gospel and how the reality of the gospel itself continues to mold and shape us as we seek to praise Him in the words that we pray this morning by our lips and our lives. That's the hope here. Okay. You want to ask some questions? I'm sure you have them. I have them too. Jim? I knew I could count on you. Okay. He stands for the judgment seat of Christ. What he say? I always think about Peter when he steps out of the boat, asks, "Call to me, Lord." And he starts sinking. He says, "Save me." And that, that image really helps me. The other thing is, hmm. talk about apostasy. And I think he just addresses, but I want to make sure. You know, the life of faith is not a straight line. It is up and down. And I remember Malcolm Muggeridge was asked that one time. He said that. I'm talking about doubt. Doubt is not the same thing as apostasy. I, I'm hoping that's what you're going to say. That there are days when we feel right in the middle of God's love and our faith, and there are other days when we're going, "Woe is me." Yeah. Do you agree with that? Yes. Well, yeah, I was going to make it. It's not fun. I was going to try to make a joke, but no, it's not funny. Um, yes, I agree with that 100. percent And in fact, um, again, this is this is Luther's influence on me, rightly so, through the Protestant tradition. And that is that the reality of the gospel and our need for the gospel and a life of repentance is not, to my mind, this is one of the areas where I maybe I lean against the Puritan and Reformed tradition that I love so much, right? But I lean against it because there's a tendency to view the Christian life as an ever ascending scale upward, right? Whereas I think for Luther and for Bard as well, who's had a big influence on me, there's an emphasis on the reality that the gospel is an again and again and again and again necessity in the Christian life. All right. I mean, I think that was when, in one moment in my own spiritual journey, when the skies began to open, when I learned the very simple principle that, that, the, that the lost need the gospel and believers do too. I, I, just, and I always thought that's just how you get in. But no, believers need the gospel again and again and again. So I think you're right here. I mean, I know you're right here. This is not a claim about the torturous character of our Christian lives when it comes to wrestling with doubt and the insecurity of our faith or the fact that we struggle to really come to terms with, can that be true? It's not that. Um, this is something that's much bigger. It's a much bigger category. And I'm not, I, I think I strain for the grammar to really describe how big it is. An ultimate repudiation that is no coming back. Right, a repudiation of the gospel of grace, a rejection of God that is a once and final rejection with no coming back. We're not talking here about Thomas Cranmer, you know, blowing it. We're not talking here about John the Baptist. We're not talking here about you and I in our moments when we're just not sure if it's true or not. That, that's not the claim here at all. Because in fact, if that were true, the author of the Hebrews would have never written his book. Right? I mean, that's what the letter's all about—to encourage those who are in these moments of doubt. 
sliding back, maybe even going back to Judaism and, and denouncing the gospel. He's warning, don't, don't go that way. Right? Stay where you are in the reality of the, of the dynamic of the again and again character of the gospel. Fran? Why does he use the language falling away or have fallen away instead of have defiantly turned and repudiated? Well, that's a good, it's a good question. Um, but I do think that the falling away here is a definitive falling away. Uh, again, because he's using this language that there is no turning back, right? So it's a definitive thing. And not to get too technical here, but it's one of his favorite Greek terms. Um, he uses the term para, fall, away, away, again and again and again throughout all the Hebrews. So it's, it's part of his particular vocabulary as well. He's crafting something rhetorical too. We didn't get into that. But that, there's, there's a sense in which that's part of his Greek vocabulary that he's, that he's building a case with. And it all begins to sound like one leitmotif in, in the, um, in the book. But, the, but I do think the falling away here is a definitive, willful falling away with no coming back. Leland. Dr. Rawls. I agree with whatever he said. He was talking about sinning against the Holy Spirit. Jesus cast the demon out of the young man. They say you cast out demons by the power of Satan. And he said Jesus is his witnesses. His two witnesses are his word and his works. So what they've done is they've already rejected his words. And now they reject his works. And they standing the stature and uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit and Jesus have both been rejected. So he's saying they, they don't have a way to stand up. That's good. His word and his spirit, which which is a Trinitarian rejection of God, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is the one thing I want to say. I'll say this and then we'll pray. Uh, these these kinds of talks are always dangerous, you know, because the wrong, the wrong people, um, the people who don't, Need this, or the? Uh, let me rephrase it. The sensitive consciences are the ones that can become heavy after a lesson like this. That's not who the author is writing to, right? He's not writing to the sensitive conscience. He's not writing to the one who who recognizes, like they're at the river Jabbok wrestling with God. I'm wrestling with God. I'm wrestling with this faith. I'm struggling to believe. He's not talking to that person, right? He's talking to the person that needs to be shouted at, right? The megaphone needs to come out because the senses have gotten dulled, right? They've become sluggish. They've become lazy. That's where the megaphone's coming out, not the person that has uh, the sensitive conscience. And I think that's very important. And I don't know where you are in that. Um, but, uh, you know, this is not for the person who's living in the dynamic of their faith and struggling and wondering and hurting. Um, that's not who he's talking to here. He's talking to the people who have grown dull. Uh, sluggish and lazy, and uh, he's raising the megaphone and saying, just beware. I don't think this is for you. I think this is the impossible possibility, but just beware. Hold on to the reality of the gospel now and unto the end. Okay. Lord, we need your help And where we spoke wrongly this morning, where we didn't understand your word correctly, where we didn't interpret it in the fullness of your revelation. Forgive us. And, and I pray, Lord, that um, you will allow today's conversation to be, um, Lord, an impetus toward hope, Lord, toward joy in the gospel, toward a confidence that um, we can't sin enough against you where you won't meet us again and again with your mercy and your forgiveness because we have a high priest. That's how you relate to us in your Son. And I also pray, Lord, that you will help us to hold on by your own, the own power of your Spirit to hold on to the truth of the gospel, Lord, to believe that it's true and that it's true for us 
in this moment and in our final moment as well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.